Hello, everyone. This is Jonathan Williams, the senior pastor of Forefront Church here in New York City. I am excited because on today's Midrash NYC podcast, we get to talk to Austin Channing Brown. Before I get into that, a couple of special announcements. I'd love to invite you to be a part of Together in This, a season where we're celebrating the stories of our church community. You can join us on Sundays to hear how conversations like Midrash have changed people's lives. And you can sign up to party with us as well at our Together in This Gala on Friday, May 13th. You can find all of these stories and all the details at ForefrontNYC.com slash Together in This. So without further ado, I want to welcome Austin Channing Brown. So my name is Austin Channing Brown, and I have a day job as a resident director at Kelvin College. Um, I manage a dormitory of 240 students at present. Um, and so my job is um, talking to students about who they broke up with or who they're dating or uh, why they drank so much last night or <laughs> what rule they may have violated or <laughs> their vocation and what they feel like God is calling them to do. Um, so that's my, that's my normal everyday job. Okay. And when, um, when that's not happening, then I also have this thing that is um, writing and speaking and traveling and consulting and preaching um, about racial justice. And so um, that is where most people know me in the Twitter world. Um, it's for all things racial justice, but it truly is um, uh, the second thing that I do in my life. But in terms of future, um, one that I would love to be freelance and just writing and speaking and um, yeah, doing all kinds of stuff to help the church move forward in this conversation on racial justice. Wow. Okay. I didn't even know you were an RD. <laughs> That's Yep. Most uh, people don't. <laughs> yeah. I immediately feel a little guilty about the way I treated my RD now because I'm talking to you. But <laughs> It's an interesting life. I will not lie to you. Yeah. Put me on my toes. So, so you had this life as an RD. Um, what got you to a place where you were like, listen, we need to start talking about racial justice and, and I need to start today. You know, what, what was the thing yeah. that brought you there or the, or the things that led you to that place? Yeah, when I was in college, um, well, first of all, I've grown up as a black girl. Um, that was my okay. experience. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so race, um, race itself um, has never been um, far from the forefront of my mind. Um, my parents raised me very much to know and understand that I am a black girl and what that meant in our family in terms of being proud of being a black girl, mm -hmm. um, but also recognizing that the world may be less than proud. And so, um, so I've always been interested in sort of racial justice, racial history, particularly black history, but it wasn't until I was in college that I even heard this phrase, racial reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And it was on a three-day bus trip through the South where a white student and a black student pair up and talk about black history. Um, we go through the South to visit all kinds of historic um, sites, and my world got rocked on that trip. I was a freshman in college, and uh, my life has never been the same. Wow, wow. What did some of those conversations look like on that bus trip? Yeah, so that trip, um, the first stop that we did was on a plantation um, that was still being run by the family who had owned slaves. <laughs> wow. And we got off the bus expecting to be um, knocked out by the realities of slavery. And instead, we were given an, um, a tour that was very romantic, 
um, of what slave life was, slave life was like. So we were told about how happy the slaves were to be there, about how they often sang while they picked cotton, about how their fingers never bled because they were so good at picking cotton, um, about how they had the best treatment of all the slaves in the area. And um, as you can imagine, it pissed black people off pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> pretty quickly. And it left a lot of white people confused because they were like, well, if this is the story of slavery, then why are we all so upset? Like, I don't understand. Um, and so that immediately created some pretty heavy conversations. And so we got back on the bus after stopping at that plantation. And the next place we went was a museum where the exhibition was lynching. Oh, my goodness. And so the museum was nothing but room after room of photographs, newspapers, postcards, um, all having to do with the lynching of black bodies. And that um, museum exhibit just stunned us all mm-hmm. into silence. Um, we walked through that museum, and you could, you could hear a pin drop. Um, and we got back on the bus and more divided than we ever <laughs> thought possible. Well, wow. Our trip that was supposed to be our reconciliation. <laughs> we were extraordinarily divided. And the more, the, funny enough, the longer we talked, the more divided we became. Why is that? Like, what, what, what were the different points of conversation? Yeah, yeah. So white students um, had felt the weight of, of being in that museum. And um, we're trying to distance themselves from it. So we got back on the bus and there was a lot of, um, well, I wasn't there. Well, I didn't do this. Or my family's not from America, so we couldn't have been a part of it. Um, Well, what about the Holocaust? You know, y'all aren't the only ones who have been through really hard things. Um, Just more and more distance. And a good portion of the African-American students on that particular trip um, had done some research about our own family histories. Mm -hmm. And so we were very much connecting with the pictures, um, both of lynching, but also the, the tour of the plantation that we had just come from hours before. Um, and so we were sort of sinking into despair, quite frankly, right. and really identifying um, not just stories, but really feeling history, you know, feeling like the gap between my great-grandparents and myself was closing. Right. Um, and so it's just really hard to hear then white students sort of distancing themselves from it as we were kind of thinking, you know, thinking into our emotions. And thank God, one um, one of my, she's still a great friend today, this was more than 10 years ago, um, she got up at the front of the bus, she's a white student, and she said, um, you know, I can see that there's a lot of pain on this bus right now. And she said, I can't take away the pain. I can't fix the pain. Like, like I feel so helpless. I just feel so helpless. And she said, but one thing that I know that I can do is I can work for the rest of my life to make sure that our children don't have to experience the pain of racism. Mm. And she said, um, she said, doing nothing is no longer an option for me. And you could feel... Yeah, you could feel something break in that moment um, because we weren't looking for anybody to fix it. <laughs> we weren't looking for anybody to make us feel better about it. Um, our history is what it is. We were looking for someone to sit in it with us mm-hmm. and to be moved by it with us. And that's what she did. So, and her words, doing nothing is no longer an option, just resonated so deeply with me. And I thought, me too. Like, that was my thought. Me too. Doing nothing is no longer an option. 
for me either. And that was it for me. Wow. So where did that, where did that take you then? Where did, where did, where did you go from there? Yeah. So funny enough, I got off that bus and just a couple weeks later, I went, I um, received a phone call from a woman named Brenda Salter McNeil, who is also highly engaged, has been engaged in this conversation for 20 absolutely, years. Absolutely. Um, she, yeah. She currently works at SPU. Um, teaching our cancellation course. <laughs> so I got off that bus and she, um, just a couple weeks later, she was looking for an administrative assistant um, to help her like book all her travel stuff and kind of keep her business life organized. Um, and so I became her administrative assistant for my three years in college. And so when a mentor like that, you kind of don't have a choice. You know what I'm saying? Right, <laughs> like, right. <you> know <laughs> After you spent three years with Brenda Foster McNeil, you know, you <laughs> just embrace that this is going to be your life. <laughs> I, I see her from afar and she, uh, she definitely inspires. So I can't imagine what it was like to work with her, you know, on the daily. So that's something. Yeah. yeah. Oh, she was amazing. And so that was like, it was truly a crash course in practicing reconciliation. Um, so being able to travel to different college campuses with her, watching her work with churches, watching her work with teams, um, listening to her sermons, um, watching her craft new sermons. I mean, it was just a crash course and truthfully, truthfully everything that I do now. Right. Um, and it was wonderful to be mentored by her. And then I graduated from college and got a master's degree in social justice, um, and jobs have taken me all over the place. I've worked with nonprofits and churches and now education. Um, but everywhere I go, the common thread truly is just being able to do something related to racial justice and multiculturalism. Sure. What so, I love. Right. So you said something that I thought was incredibly interesting. You said that your friend yeah. stood up, this, this white woman stood up, and she said, yeah. I'm going to spend the rest of my life... Um, trying to fix this so that this doesn't happen again. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think if I'm going to go ahead and, and make assumptions, which you can tell me if I'm wrong, sure. I think a lot of the time, mm-hmm. uh, the dominant culture, the majority culture will say, I'm sorry that this happened. And then we just stop. Yep. We just stop. I'm, yep. I'm, I'm, I'm with, I'm with you on this. I'm sorry it happened. This is awful. Mm-hmm. And I'm done because I said enough. Yeah. I think that was the real difference. The fact that she was making a commitment um, to doing something, right? A commitment to action. So, um, right. Which mattered. Which, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that gets me to the question, you know, you, I, it seems like you are someone who is asking people to make a commitment to action. Um, and so talk about that, talk about that for, you know, the Caucasian culture, talk about that for churches, talk about that for the nonprofits. What call to action are you, um, asking people to make? Yeah. So, um, a couple things. One, I think if I were to like boil it down, if I only had five minutes to talk to you, um, I think I would say that the work of justice is made in decisions. Okay. It's made in decisions. So we can talk about how we feel, we can talk about our hopes, and we can talk about our ideals, and we can talk about what we're trying to do and we're hopeful to see. So we can talk about um, how much we desire a multiracial leadership team. We could talk about how we really desire to stretch our worship services. We could talk about how important it is um, that our congregations become more diverse. We can, right, like we could talk about our hopes and ideals and what we want, what we hope to see, and what our heart's desire is and what we're praying about all day long. <laughs> the, pr- the, the praying one just is, yeah, we're, we're going to pray about this. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. But the truth is the work of justice 
is in the decision making. So are you, when you make your next hire, going to make sure that it's a person of color? When you plan your next worship service, will it include the same songs y'all have always been singing? Or will you actually throw a Spanish song in there? When it's time to put a new person on the board, will the person be homogenous and think just like every other person that has ever been on your board? You know, that, that the work of justice is done in decisions. Mm-hmm. It is not done in hopes and ideals and the we desire and the we're praying for. All those things have their place before you get to the decision. But at some point, you got to make a decision. The most definitely. And that is, right? And that is what I, if I had to boil down my singular message to people who are white and who genuinely care about this conversation, who genuinely want to see something happen, I think what I, I would like to impart is that the hopes and the dreams all in all are meaningless until decisions are being made that actually move this forward. I mean, that's a big first step, a giant first step. And yeah, I think there's a lot of people in churches out there that haven't done that. Let me ask you, let me, let me push it a little further. Let's say you have a, a white church or predominantly white church that does make a decision. You know what? My next hire, our next hire um, is going to be someone of color or someone of a, uh, you know, an ethnic minority. minority. Um, is, do you think, or maybe I'm making another assumption, you know, to me, there's still blind oh, yeah. spots. To me, there's still these, these. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So talk to me about those blind spots. Talk to me a little bit about how the church um, needs to do some work after the, de- the decision is made. Yeah, so I'll be honest. I um, I don't desire to be anybody's first like black female anything. <laughs> I want to be a first black. <laughs> I want to be a first black female speaker. I don't want to be the first one on the board. Like I don't. That's a lot. That's a lot of pressure and a lot of work and a lot of teaching that I just. I totally frankly don't desire to do, and I think that's because in answer to your question, because there's so much unlearning that white people still have to do. And so the decision isn't a one-time decision, right? It's right. not just, um, oh, we found someone who looks different. Now we're done. Um, <laughs> right? The question is when you're committing, there's a difference between committing to being multi-colored um, and being multicultural. And being multicolored is a lot easier. Um, Dr. David Anderson writes this writes about this in one of his books, Um that being multicolored, you know, means that we still all think alike. We still do the same things. And, you know, I accept you, even though you're different, as long as you're just like me in every other way. And as long as I still get to call the shots and as long as I still get to create the culture I want to create, mm-hmm. um, as long as you agree with me, you know, <laughs> as long as you stay within the boundaries of what I would like to do, um, then that's great. Yay, we're multicolored. <laughs> But to be multicultural means to lay down power, right? It really means that I'm going to change the way we do things. Um, I'm going to give a voice to um, someone else at the table. I'm going to make decision-making around not what is best for me or what I think, um, but around what is best for the diversity, presumably diversity at the table. Um, There's a lot of work that goes into it. And that's why a lot of people don't do it. Uh, <laughs> like, it's why, it's why so many don't. Um, because it's so much harder to let go of white supremacy, which is the belief that the way I've been doing things is really, really good. And quite frankly, better than any other way anybody else could do it. Wow. Yeah. 
That is so good. <laughs> That's really, really good. <laughs> um, and you know, the, the, the interesting thing is, is that, uh, I think there are plenty, me, me included, white people who are like, you know what, I, I want to take those steps. And, and frankly, it's more Christ-like, right? You know, what, what Christ does is, is withholds oh, yeah. power. And as, you know, as a white male, I, I, I recognize my privilege and power, right? And so you withhold that and you, you lay yeah, it down. Yeah, yeah. And, but you, know, you said easier said than dumb. Do you feel like you're able to speak into or to, uh, um, to mentor uh, you know, other white people who are asking these same questions and say, this is how you do it. This is how you lay down that power. This is how you, are, you, know, you recognize that your, uh, your story is the dominant story. It's not the right story. How do you instruct? Oh, gosh, I don't know. (laughs) You know, one thing I do is I try really hard to leave to the Holy Spirit what is the Holy Spirit. Um, Amen. And so, you know, I I am not here to convert. I am not here to, you know, awaken hearts and minds. I'm really just trying to tell the truth and then let the Holy Spirit trust that the Holy Spirit will set people free. And sometimes I get to witness that, and sometimes I do not. Um, But I try really hard to stay in my lane, you know? And for me, right now, this could change in the future, but right now, today, um, I feel like my lane is just saying the truth about what I see. And so when I see a church that um, has a multicolored board or a multicolored worship service, um, but not a multicultural one, not one that honors all people, um, not one that is taking to an account outside voices, um, then I feel like I have an obligation to say, hey, y'all, look at this. <laughs> Do you see this? This is what's happening. Um, and so, and with individuals, um, it becomes a little bit more complicated, honestly. Sometimes the systemic stuff is easier. Right. Um, but with individuals, often... Um, you know, white people hear what they hear me saying is you're a bad person. Uh, I was just at a conference um, yesterday talking about writing and um, what it means to write really hard things, what it means to write prophetically. And there was a guy in the audience who said, hey, listen, so I noticed y'all use the word white supremacy a lot. <laughs> like, yes, you do. <laughs> and, he said, and he said, I know that you're just trying to be antagonistic. Like, I see the value in that and being antagonistic towards white people, but wouldn't it be easier to just like win them over with nicest was like the, <laughs> the basics of his question. <laughs> it, it, As it, you know, that's interesting <laughs> that you think I'm trying to be antagonistic. <laughs> like, I'm really not. <laughs> I'm really not. I have no desire to argue. I have no desire um, to convince you of anything you don't want to be convinced of. I, the work that I do personally, me, Austin Janning Brown, um, the work that I do really is an attempt to connect the dots for people who want to connect the dots. Mm-hmm. I am not interested in trying to convince anybody that they should care about racial justice and reconciliation. I want to talk to the people who are already convinced of that, who are already committed to that, and just want to know how to walk it out, who are wanting to be challenged, who want their blind spots removed, who want to think systemically, um, and who are not afraid of their own white fragility, you oh, know, who my. can take discomfort and move forward anyway. My goodness. Yeah. That is, that's, that's again, really good stuff. And you actually answered the Twitter question that I had for you about the white supremacy. Stuff. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> that we knocked out two questions in one right there. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. Um, 
No, you know, because it's interesting that, you know, I, I saw that response on Twitter and I thought, okay, by the by definition, um, the fact that whites are the majority culture, there is a white supremacy. I, I think, I don't think it's antagonistic yeah. at all. Uh, but I also wondered, and, and I guess this is part two to the question, I also wondered, you know, has American Christianity, or even the way we've read scripture, contributed to the thought or the idea that, oh, the word white supremacy is antagonistic, or has contributed to more of a multicolored rather than multicultural? Uh, I'm curious about your thoughts. Yeah, white people have used the Bible for comfort for a very, very long time. And, um, and if it if it, uh, <laughs> the number of ways that the Bible has been used to bring comfort to whiteness um, are overwhelming. And as soon as I knock down one, another one would pop up. So, Can you give me an example um, of one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I'm not, I don't have enough grace. Um, there's not enough love in this conversation. Um, but I should be for peace. And instead I'm being divisive. Um, but there's neither Jew nor Greek nor, <laughs> right? Like I could go on and on and on and on and on with a number of ways that what I am saying <laughs> may be right, right? Rarely is, is it the conversation that what you are saying is wrong. Often the conversation is just trying to be misdirected, um, to be a conversation about me and my tone and my voice and, um, in order to distract from whether or not what I said is true. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think a large part of that is because whiteness doesn't know discomfort. And it feels like, <laughs> I think it often feels like um, discomfort for white people in and of itself must be wrong. It must be a sin itself. <laughs> Clearly you are doing something wrong if I feel discomfort. <laughs> there is something spiritually wrong with this conversation. <laughs> and people of color have been dealing with discomfort for a long, long time. Right. <laughs> so we're like, whatever. <laughs> Welcome to the dark side. <laughs> well, I think the Bible... We don't need to spiritualize it. <laughs> oh, right, right. <laughs> the Bible does a nice job, or th- what we do with the Bible, I guess, is we do a nice job mm-hmm. of making the Bible say and do exactly what we, what we wanted to say yeah. and do. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that makes Which sense. Which is the core of white supremacy. Uh, so for a long time, Christianity and white supremacy have been in bed together, and trying to untangle the two of them is a process. So talk about that process. What, where do you start, or where would you tell someone to start? Oh man. So, oh gosh, now that is a hard question to answer. I'm not, I'm not sure there's one starting place. I'm just going to name a bunch of whatever people want to hop in. I think that's great. Um, I think one trying to read the Bible without the lens of white supremacy is a good place to start. So reading books by, um, people of color, um, who would, who would ordinarily or who have (laughs) so, we have so normalized theology, um, that uh, the theology has a name, right? So, like, liberation theology, mm-hmm. um, right? So I think starting with a theology that feels um, different, that feels not normalized, um, written by persons of color is a good place to start. Uh, Dr. James Cohn immediately comes to mind. Um, Howard Thurman is another one. Um, there are lots of up-and-coming... Um, Books on womanist theology, I think that's another great place to start. 
Um, so I think that's one way, is just to start reading the Bible through the lens of people of color as opposed to the lens of whiteness. Okay, yeah. I think another thing to do would be to take um, a history course or to pick up some history books that do the same, that are honest about Native American history or Japanese American history or black history, um, Mexican American history. And to get a different, to, to strip one's history of the myths that America has created, um, I think that could be extraordinarily helpful. I think to the degree possible to place oneself under the mentorship of a willing participant who's mm-hmm. a person of color, I think is humongous. Um, and I do mean willing. This <laughs> can be really tricky when you have just decided that someone is going to be your mentor <laughs> versus someone who is willing to be your mentor. <laughs> Let's make sure the person is willing. Um, but I think that there are a lot of white people who have never had a person of color as a supervisor um, or as a mentor or as a professor, um, as someone whose authority they have placed themselves under. And I think that could be huge for a number of white people, um, even if there's a time limit on Like, even if it's like one year, for right. one year, I'm going to put myself under right the authority of this person and read what they say read and watch what they say watch. Um go where they say go. I think that could be an extraordinary experience for a lot of people. So I don't think there's any one way. Um, I just think someone has to be willing to make the commitment to do something different Um, because America will always cater to the comfort of whiteness. And so white people have to be very, very intentional um, about destroying their own comfort. Yes. You know, I think the funny thing that you said, and maybe it's not so funny, is I I may or may not have been guilty of, uh, you know, oh, I want you to be my mentor and recognizing that it was, it was just another way of using privilege. Like, this person's like, I, I, you know, I didn't ask for it. And I was like, oh, you didn't ask for it. I, it's, it's true. Okay. I have my bad. <laughs> um, yeah. So when you're, you know, in, in your position as an RD, and you have these yeah. students that come to you and you're, you're telling them what to read. You're telling them uh, what to look at, uh, new lenses to look through. Um, you know, yeah. And I'm, I'm going back to the word start. It start. It's starting there. But what kind of conversations need to be had? Because I think reading is great. I think reading is one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, are, there, are there conversations, you know, almost harkening back to the, the, your friend on the bus? What kind of conversations will move yeah, this forward? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think one trend that I've noticed, I'll come back to you, like what I specifically do, but I think yeah. one trend and sort of larger way beyond myself that I've noticed um, is a lot of churches are moving toward um, having um, caucus conversations. So white people all get into a room and there's a white person who's been in this conversation for a long time who then leads them through a conversation. Hmm. about what is white supremacy? What is white fragility? What is America's true history? Um, and then people of color go to in a separate room and get to have a different conversation um, about how they navigate through white supremacy and how they resist white supremacy. And, um, and I think that's really interesting. One, because often what happens when people get together in, uh, in a conversation, people of color end up taking care of the emotions of white people who are struggling through the conversation. Yes. And that doesn't feel good. <laughs> Or people of color end up having to reveal their scars. So they're like rolling up their sleeves and 
um, trying to convince white people that their scars are real. And that's not helpful either. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it's helpful for white people, but it's not helpful for people of color. So sure. like, I revisit the scar again. Um, and so I think that's, that's really fascinating way to approach conversations. Now, at some point, y'all got to get into a room together and have frank conversations. But as a starting place, I think that is really fascinating. I also think it gives white people who are trying to figure out what to do, right, once they've been having the conversations, um, it gives them a very clear next step. Okay, so you've been in this conversation for a while. You've learned some things. Now it's your job not to go save the people of color. It's your job to go save other white people. So go into a room with some other white people and teach them the way. Um, So I think that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, something I'd like to hear more about in terms of how that continues to grow. For me personally, and my job as an RD, um, I honestly, I am a... I let students opt in to this conversation. Okay. So I'm a resident director. I have a job that I am paid to do, and um, and I do not expect students to participate in this conversation just because I happen to be their RD. And thankfully, I have students who are interested. And so, for example, I taught a class, um, a non-credit class, um, on the new Jim Crow in January okay. and wh- whatever students wanted to participate, they were more than welcome to. And it was a blast. We had so much fun, but that really is kind of what my role looks like as an RD. Um, we do have RA trainings and, um, I have been a part of sort of crafting what those trainings look like mm-hmm. and how to start one-on-one conversations. Um, and so one thing we did was had all of our staff, we, um, we created, we created an open space, um, a literal open space, and erected stations, probably 16 different stations or so, okay. where every single RD each had a topic of racial justice that they were personally interested in. And then a couple of our students of color, too, um, participated in this and were able to lead a station, which I think was really empowering for them. Yeah. Um, but some of the stations included, how do you have hard conversations with your family, like, during Thanksgiving break when <laughs> you go home. That's, that's, a, that's important, though. How do you, yeah. Right? Like, real, yeah. like, concrete stuff, yeah. right? Yeah, um, Especially when you're a student. Like, you are you thought the way your parents did, and now you're at school and you're learning all these things. How do you go back and say, hey, actually, I think you just said something really racist. <laughs> right, right. You know? And so that was one station. Um, what is Black Lives Matter and how do I understand it was another station. Um, we had a station on the criminal justice system. Um, we had a station for people who are biracial and multiracial. What does that look like? And how is that different um, from just sort of understanding yourself to be one racial identity? But that was a lot of fun. And it gave students an opportunity to visit four or five stations in the space of like an hour and 15 minutes or something. Mm-hmm. And they could figure out what were they most comfortable with. And they were having conversations um, with one another, with their own peers, which I think is helpful, too. So, yeah, so we do a lot of fun stuff with students. But the majority of my job, honestly, um, day in and day out, has very little to do with racial justice. And I let students opt into that if they want to come chat with me about it or not. I'm curious about this caucus that you've talked about. Have you have you tried this yet? Or? Yeah, I had our students go through one okay. um, very early in the school year. Now, I wasn't in the white one, obviously, for obvious reasons. <laughs> so I did the student of color <laughs> one, and it was fascinating. I will tell you, I think students of color were far more honest about their experience um, being at a predominantly white school. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I think there was a certain level of camaraderie that they were able to build because it was so much easier to see one another because they weren't sort of like searching each other over the white faces that would normally be in the room. Mm -hmm. Um, but it did have its downfalls. So some of the students of color, um, wanted white students to hear what they were saying. They wanted white students to hear the passion um, that they were bringing to this conversation. And so I don't think it's like the way that it must be done by any means. But I do think there was some virtue in it. And Mm -hmm. I would be interested in participating in more and hearing what a white person's experience is, um, both as participator and also as leader. So who is the white person who's leading that conversation? I think would be fascinating. Oh, this is a, this is a good challenge. I like this challenge. I I feel like right. I feel like our church. So interesting. Yeah, it is. I feel like our church has to take it on. That's that's exciting for me. I feel like okay. <laughs> you let me know if you do it. I want to know how it goes. I, I'll let you know. I'm sure it'll be messy and uh, yeah. you know and all the rest. But you, you know, I, I I just want to thank you because what I keep hearing from you and what's encouraging to me. Uh, I keep hearing you talking about, you know, hey, take a step at a time. Stop, you know, stop wallowing and, oh, and asking yeah. for forgiveness and putting that on black people. You know, take a step, make a move, mm-hmm. make, make a decision, decision. keep going. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, and that's encouraging. So I just want to say thank you for that. Uh, yeah, my pleasure. Uh, so is there anywhere after this podcast that people can find you or your yeah. work or your talks or anything like that? Yeah, so I live on the Twitters. So I'm at Austin Channing on Twitter. I do also have a Facebook page that's Austin Channing Brown, um, where people can sort of, that's a space where I post a lot of the things that I'm reading. Okay. Um, that I find on the internet. So that's a lot of fun for me. Um, and I do have a website, AustinChanning.com, um, where I post my own blogs and occasional videos and whatnot. Um, and for the moment, I think that's it. That's all I can think of off the top of my head. All right. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, hearing you in other places and other avenues and other mediums. Yeah. It's gonna be good. yeah. Yeah. That'd be great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you being on uh, this podcast and, uh, you know, I hope it encourages others the way it encouraged me today. Thank you. Yeah. My pleasure. Thanks so much for listening uh, to Austin Channing Brown and go follow her on Twitter and go listen to her talks. It's absolutely worth it. If you're interested in a church that is committed to honestly figuring out the life of this Jesus and, and living together in love and pursuing justice and everything else, we invite you to check out Forefront. You can go to www.forefrontnyc.com and find out more. Thanks again. and We look forward to hearing from you soon.